All right, I'm here with Simon Newton. He's had a hell of a story. Potentially two more films in the pipeline as well. A bodyguard, he's been all over the world. He's minded some of the biggest celebrities, perhaps the most famous being Michael Jackson, but also Kendall Jenner, Bella Hadid, Rita Ora, and on and on it goes. Um, he has his own security company, Ascari, is that how I pronounce it? That's right, yeah, yeah. Secure Limited, which is based in central London, and he's been in a number of movies and TV shows, including Final Score, where he doubled for Dave Bautista, Green Zone Thriller, and Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. So, huge thank you for coming on, Simon. Really appreciate it. That's all right. You're welcome. And we've got Jen co-hosting. All the links for Simon and Jen will be in the description box if you want to add to their social medias. They're both active on Instagram. So we usually like to start with like not just going back, you know, to where you grew up and all that, but take us into the middle of the action from your life. What's one of the stories you could tell us that you think is the most riveting? Riveting. Um, I've got a few riveting stories, really, but from <laughs> from um, all different angles. Mm-hmm. Some from a dangerous angle. Some from maybe an exciting angle. Some from a um, an amazing angle. So I guess we love danger. One of my most eventful times in my life, I, I spent three years working in Iraq as a security, private security contractor. Um, so that was probably my most, uh, 2000 and end of 2003 to 2006, I spent out there, um, predominantly to start with looking after people um, from the American oil company. But then I moved on to a contract with the Japanese government bringing in convoys of aid and power stations and uh, whatever Iraq needed to help rebuild um, but Japan wanted to sort of um, donate to the country so and that we used to get hit on that all the time ambush after ambush um, lots of Can guys you take us through an ambush um, well literally yeah <laughs> um, I mean it's, well, the it's, smells it's, the sights the sounds yeah. what's happening <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, there's many different there's many different types of ambush. So you can get anything <laughs> from maybe just a um, small arms fire, which might be one or two rounds hit the road uh, around you, or maybe the vehicle. Um, we was in armoured vehicles then, so th- things like that didn't really matter too much. Um, so, so that was the best we could hope for, I and mean, you just drive through it. And to be honest with you, that happened quite often um, with various teams. So that was kind of a, kind of a I would put it almost in a, as a common occurrence. But when you Simon, you, you say Simon, you're saying this so casually. I know you're a man of resolve, <laughs> but all right, just, just let's slow down a little bit. You're you're in an armored vehicle in yeah. Iraq, yeah. And then what happens next to indicate there's an ambush? What do you see or hear? Again, it depends. So if it's a small shoot like what I just described, you might not really hear anything. You might see something. Um, quite often. Or not often, but pretty much always. That a bullet bullet uh, travels faster than the speed of sound, so it hits before you hear it go off. So uh, that's why it's crack thump, and it's the bullet hitting the the target, and then it's the, the gun going off. So it's in reverse order. So quite often you would see it as something before you hit. Now, if it hit your windscreen or a window of the car, obviously you would notice it. Sometimes you see it spray up off the road. Um, but other than that, there's probably times we were shot at and we was totally unaware of it as well because we just didn't pick up on it. 
Were you no some... protocol just to drive away or return fire? Just just keep driving. When you're inside an armoured vehicle, you can't return fire because you can't shoot out of... A... Not all of them, but the ones we had, you can't shoot out of an armoured vehicle. Um, so you normally keep it, because it's armoured and it's like a, 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 a relatively secure environment, you keep it as a secure environment as much as you can. You don't really want to be opening doors and messing around too much. So if if you can drive out of it, that's what you'll do. You only really leave the vehicle if you really, really, really have to. I hear in some cases you were also baited by young children. Was this the case with yourself? Um, yeah, in the early... So I was in Iraq as well, the military. Uh, in, in the early stages, um, straight after the war, uh, we used to get stoned a lot. But that was all young children. Um, and I used to smash all the vehicles. And that's before we had armoured cars then, so we had what we call soft skin vehicles. That's normal cars we get on UK roads. So obviously stones and rocks used to go straight through those windows all the time. Um, so there was a lot of children action, child action involved then. But as it got more serious, as the rumps rolled on, not so much, really. The children were the best indicators for us, really, actually, because if they weren't in the street where they would normally be or they start run off the street when you turn up, then you know something's probably about to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Simon, what's the closest you've ever come to losing your life? Oh, um, what occasion? <laughs> The worst one. The worst First. one. Let's start with that one. Um, I mean, for me, I, I would say not that many, but compared to the normal person, it's probably a lot. So, um, I mean, I was I was in the Sheraton Hotel back in, in Baghdad in 2005, I'm going to say. It's four or five. Um, we, we got hit by three Chinese rockets. The insurgency fired rockets into the hotel. Uh, we was on the 18th floor. Um, and they fired him into the 12th floor and set the place on fire. Um, a few people got killed on that. Um, obviously, what did you know, it sound we, like? Um, again, the, the building, you thought it was an earthquake to start with. Uh, the building just shook violently. Um, and then, then it was very, very loud after that. And it, our initial thing was we thought we thought we was getting mortared and they were landing outside on the ground around us. We didn't realize it was the hotel. Um, and we had three that hit, so basically we, you can't really do a lot. We've got kind of let that finish because there's not much you can do. Um, so we let it finish, and then uh, it was all hands, all hands to the deck to put fire out and um, just make sure that the, the the area around the hotel wasn't being overrun by insurgents. We did have um, U.S. soldiers with us at the same time to for like force protect protection around the hotels. Um, so we did have quite a few guys, but yeah, unfortunately they managed to still catch us that day or that evening. So did you encounter a lot of corpses then? Uh, <laughs> on and off, yeah, on the roadside. I mean, quite often you drive past um, bombings, what had happened in the town. Uh, so it might not necessarily be an attack on yourself, but you might be a few minutes around the corner for something was just been blown up. Um, it wasn't uncommon, unfortunately, just to see dead people um, where they'd maybe been killed in the night and just left there. And in the morning, you you, you might find them. Well, they weren't littering the, the town, but on occasions we did come across people and children, women and children as well, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, in, in terms of death, there's a lot of it in those countries back then. I'm not sure what it's like today, but back then there was quite a lot of it, yeah. So on to the next one was the second near-death experience. The uh, second one, I mean, when I was on convoys in... Um, in Iraq, 2006, we, we got IEDs. I don't know how many times. I lost count how many times an IED hit the vehicle. I was quite lucky, but um, we never really got anything huge. But there was four or five guys there when I was there who all got killed um, on separate occasions. 
normally due to IED blast, which is an improvised explosive device. And uh, they used to be quite, um, even though it was in armoured vehicles, they used to be quite powerful and they'd put them in the, the drainage system under the road. And if they were sighted correctly and they went off, they'd blow up under the vehicle um, and pretty much take everyone out that was in it. So that that was rel- relatively common, unfortunately, around that period. Um, then Afghanistan, um, I was there for two years as private security again. Um, um, we, had a, we had an aircraft, a C-130 aircraft. We used to drive our vehicles on the back of it, and it wasn't a mili- military aircraft. It was, a, it was run by a civilian um, logistics company, which would fly us around the country. And one of our jobs at the time was looking after HMRC, uh, British HMRC customs officers, um, who were mentoring the Afghan drugs police at the time and just doing the city gate checkpoints and, and checking on the airports. Um, so we'd fly around the country doing that. But this plane we had um, wasn't sort of a, wasn't the best plane I've been on. Um, I remember one of the times the altimeter broke on it and uh, the pilot couldn't really work out exactly how far to the runway he was on the way down. Um, that was quite a hairy moment. There was another situation which I wasn't there, but I was on. I was. I think I was on leave, and the week before, the guys were on the C one hundred and thirty, and which was a military one, and it caught on fire. Um, and they luckily everybody got off that, and the, the whole plane went up in smoke on that one. So that, I mean, you know, around that time, there was another guy um, who got shot, unfortunately, on a C one hundred and thirty when I was in Iraq, um, and. We believe that he got shot when we was taking uh, taken off from Basra Air Station, um, and the, it's just an unlucky round went up underneath the aircraft um, and up, you know, up into the fuselage and actually killed him while he was sitting there. And no one really noticed um, until we landed in Baghdad that the guy wasn't asleep; he was actually uh, he'd been killed. But oh my God. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we landed on Baghdad. Baghdad uh, Baghdad airstrip one day that was being mortared the day we land you know it's, it's loads of things like that which more think about it there's probably more and more of it to be honest you forget about half of it because it becomes a bit, a bit more of a, a regular thing when you're working in that environment um seeing all that obviously led you to then become a celebrity bodyguard instead uh not really I I so I left I decided when I was in Afghanistan I'd done two years I decided I wanted to come back um, to the UK, I hadn't really worked in the UK much. The only job I'd done in the UK actually was Michael Jackson. I'd done that while I was um, on leave from Afghanistan at the time. So I thought, I, I thought I'd come back. I knew I'd have to be working back here at some stage because I wasn't going to work in the Middle East all my life. Um, and I, I come back with the view to sort of look after anyone or anything really, sort of just get involved in the business in London. I used to live in Eastbourne at the time, down on the South Coast. So I moved to London Um and the first job I picked up was with the Dubai Wall family. Um, and I did two years with them. And that was kind of the start of my bodyguard career in London, really, which was quite a sort of lower tempo of, of work, far safer. Well, before we get into that, I think uh, Sean's busting to go back to where you actually grew up. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so like I just said, I was born he in... That's a good love, life story from the beginning. Yeah, I was born in Eastbourne. Um, I'm 44 years old. I was born in Eastbourne. Uh, brought up in Eastbourne. I went to school in Eastbourne. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I've got a, a mum and dad, sister. I, I had a sort of standard upbringing. Um, wasn't rich, wasn't poor. Um, 
my father was a firefighter. Uh, my mum had various jobs, but um, as well as being you know a mum to bringing up myself and my sister. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I had a you know a, a good sort of standard um, life as a child. I joined the army cadets when I was a child, um, so I had a little bit of interest, obviously, from that uh, doing the army side of stuff. Then, um, one of my first jobs, sort of like adult jobs, if you can call it an adult job, I um, I used to I used to dress as a bear. Quite proud of this job, to be honest. I used to dress as a bear at the local um, theme park in Eastbourne. Um, and I did a, a summer of that. I think I was about 15, 16. Um, and I did, yeah, I did that. I did that for a whole summer. And I actually really, really, Rocky the Bear, his name was, I actually really enjoyed that. Um, Wasn't it rather annoying with kids running over to you? Yeah, well, no, that's what it was all about. I used to have to have someone with me and holding me, you know, holding onto my hand because this suit was huge. I couldn't really move around. And carrying a birthday cake with all the candles on it, I mean, today it probably wouldn't be allowed. But, um, Back then, I, yeah, if it weren't for the money, I'd probably still be doing that job now. Fair. Really, really that. Yeah. Um, so that was my that was my thing. There's a few people from um, in cadets. I was with. We left left army cadets to join the army, um, and I, I think there was a couple of people in this park that I worked at as well that actually left to join and join the army. So I knew it was something I wanted to do. Um, I was a fat kid, so I wasn't particularly fit. Um, when back then it's probably changed a bit now but back then when you joined up you used to have to do a height to weight uh sort of BMI thing I needed to be about 18 or 19 foot tall to get in at my weight so I got shushed out of the office and said that I couldn't join the army um so I, I left then I went to do mechanical engineering apprenticeship in a place down in Eastbourne um uh I did I think two just two and a half years maybe three years there but in that period of time, I started getting fit as well, started losing weight. Um, and then sort of when I got to a stage where I was fit and uh, I'd lost a lot of weight, I thought, well, I'm going to go back to the back to the military now and go and do the military. Um, what motivated you to get fit? Women. <laughs> women. Women. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of that. It was a bit of everything. Um, obviously, I wanted to join the military, you need to be fit. Um, and it, it's not just need to be fit. I didn't want to struggle when I was in it as well. But also, um, yeah, you know, going out. At the time, a lot of my friends who had already joined up at that stage, they'd been in a year or two. So they were coming home, loads of money in their pocket, sometimes two weeks off, sometimes a month off, out drinking, you know, having fun. And I was thinking, you know, I, I, I'm doing this engineering thing and I'm on half the money and I'm not getting out and I can't do, I can't go out on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night. I can only go out on a Friday and Saturday. Um, and all of that um, sort of, it's just a, combination of everything I think that spurred me on to think this is the life that I want to sort of have a go at that really I don't want to be stuck doing what I was doing so I think that really pushed me on to lose the weight and actually when I first started it was more important for me to lose the weight than it was to actually be fit I was just just wanted to get rid of the weight but obviously as you lose weight you become fitter especially if you're doing it from running and you know trying to eat a bit better so and that's what I did I, I went out one night full tracksuit dark outside and I think I ran about one lamppost um, and, I, and it was probably looking at it now it wouldn't have been running really but it felt like I was running um, went back inside next day two lampposts three lampposts and so it went on and where I used to live with my parents at the end of the road there was a at the time I used to call it a hill but a slight incline up the road 
um, to go to some shops. And I always remember thinking, you know, if I can run up to those shops, and then that'd be great. And then, you know, within a week, I was running up to the shops and I was running back up and back down. And then I went around the block and so it went on. Um, and then obviously, I lost a fair bit of weight from doing that over sort of the next three or four months. And then I thought, actually, do you know what? I'm going back to the military now because I'm going to be fitter and I'm going to be better. Um, and, that, and that's kind of, you know, I mean, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. If I hadn't have done that, my life would have been very different, I think, today. So you prepared, you were prepared for the military training and obviously passed first time? Yeah, I, I actually joined. So I joined, um, the army wouldn't have me at the time. So I joined because of my, my, my height and weight thing. So I went to, I, I joined um, my local, well, I was TAN's reserve unit. Um, I didn't do five minutes, to be honest. Um, as soon as I was in it, I literally transferred. Um, I went straight across to the regular army. Um, and then I got posted to Canada. And I was out in Canada for... 12, 13 months, I think. Um, yeah, I got I got posted to Canada and I did, uh, we used to do live firing and blank um, exercises out there. Um, so you do two weeks live firing of tank. It's everything, it's a whole, it's one of the biggest places. I think it's closing now actually, but where you can exercise kind of the whole of the British Army with tanks, um, artillery, um, all sorts of rockets and mortar bombs and infantry, and it can all come together and, and live fire. So I went out there to do that for, uh, well, it works out just nearly 13 months in the end by the time I come back. Um, and that was that was a good time. I did adventure training as well out there. I went dodge, dog sledging uh, for, for a number of number of weeks. Um, so, yeah, I learned a lot in that time. It got me away from Eastbourne. Um, I was... 22 I think 21 22 by then um and then that finished and I had some time off and I was back and then Iraq had started the right well everyone was everyone everyone was forming up in Q8 to come across the border to start the 2003 Iraq war um and then I can't remember what month I went out I went out 2003 early 2003 I went out um for, for the war um and I finished towards the end of 2003. Um, and that was a, as a soldier, that's probably my best time. That, that, that whole experience was probably my best time. I was a young lad. I always wanted to go to war, be a soldier. Um, and I just enjoyed, you know, looking back, it was, parts of it weren't particularly nice. But the whole experience for me back then, it's the first time I'd ever been anywhere like that. It's the first time I've been out somewhere where you carry live ammunition because there's people that might shoot at you. You know, the whole thing of being a soldier is done in somewhere like, you know, Iraq or at, at that time. So I, I really enjoyed that. That's probably the best, one of the sort of highlights. And to other people, they might think I've done far better stuff than that. But for me, that was one of the highlights of my my life and I think because I was so young and it was all so new to me I really enjoyed what I did there. And after that you carried on working in the Middle East for American oil company KBR? KBR yeah I, I left I, I kind of got offered an art, a job actually where I was still at the military so when, when we was finishing in Iraq I had the choice that the unit I did a little bit of work with um, you have to do a selection course to go on to it um, and they were running one in Catterick Garrison when they got back um, and basically uh, me and a friend of mine who actually stayed in and he did it and I got out. But um, I would have gone back to Catterick, done the course, and hopefully you know, if I passed it, I would have stayed at, at Catterick. Um, but I also got offered a job from a private security company, which actually the office at the time 
was on Buckingham Gate in London, which is just behind where I'm sitting now. So I'm at my office now. Um, and uh, I went there for an interview um, and they, they kind of offered me a job, but realised I was still in the military. And at the time you weren't allowed to, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. So I got sent off and told to sort of, you know, they wanted, wanted to give me a job, but I had to reapply after I'd left. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customer's with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Um, can't wait to have this this morning. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Um, so that's what I did, really. I left. Um, I finished it all up. You know, So my, my military career wasn't particularly long at all because of that job. If it wasn't for that job... I would have stayed in the military. I loved it. You know, I really enjoyed it. But um, And within a couple of months, I was back out in southern Iraq, in Basra, um, as a private security contractor. Um, at towards, right towards the end of probably December 2003, roughly something like that. Um, I was only 24 years old, I think. I was quite young for that job. And when had was you it? In... Sorry, carry on, Sean. Had you encountered corpses by this time? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious because you said, you know, you're having the time of your life, it's putting meaning into your life, the military destruction, all that kind of thing. But for an average person to be encountering corpses, it's got to be traumatic. I'm oh, just wondering how, how you process that psychologically, like the first time. Do you know what? It's a good it. question because I always, I always remember the first time, actually, but I don't remember many times after. And um, there are some I do, well, normally because of the circumstances more than you know, sort of what they look like. But I always remember my first one because I was quite young and it was nothing to do with us. We hadn't, we hadn't, the incident had already happened before we got there and we just happened to be driving past it. And there was a guy lying um, in the middle of the road with his wife over him. He'd be shot between the eyes. So it looked like an execution. execution yeah. Yeah. Smile. So the first time I saw a, a, a dead, a dead guy is a guy it was, and he, he had his wife um, sort of leaning over and crying. And there was a young child next to him as well. And we was we didn't stop or anything. Um, we, we was driving past. It was quite slow. He'd been shot in between the eyes, sort of up here. So it looked like it had been some sort of like an execution style killing. Unfortunately, um, it hadn't happened long before we we went past. And I remember just looking at it and thinking, "All oh, right, that's what a that's what a dead body looks like." Um, and I'm not gonna say I didn't think anything of it at all. I think a little bit of it it made me realise that this is not a game. You know, this is real. Um, although I always knew it was, I always knew the dangers, but more so when you see that, you think, right, well, you know, we really are, we're in a place now which is dangerous. Um, because although no one's shot, sh- uh, fired at us or we've not fired at anyone else, someone's de- dead there and it's only a few minutes ago, so something's happened. Um, so that probably made me think, right, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't a game. Um, but 
yeah, to be honest, I didn't really think much. And I don't know why. I, I didn't, you know, I just thought, oh, that's what one looks like. For, it, was, it was a little bit different about that one, I think, was seeing the wife and child there as well. And I remember thinking, imagine that was, you know, you bending over and looking at your, your wife or your husband to what that woman must be feeling right now. I mean, I don't know the circumstances of it all. I don't know if he was a good man, a bad man, or whatever happened, obviously. But um, I, I, that sort of stuck with me a little bit, having your daughter and your wife leaning over you while you're, while you're gone like that. And I just thought, you know, what a harsh, what a harsh area of the world this is. Yeah. So seeing as that uh, didn't quite shock you, have you have any mo- had any moments that did? Uh, not shock. There's lots of times you get scared. Um and everyone deals with being scared differently. And obviously, um, not, it, when you're in the military, you've got a lot of people for backup. You've got tanks, you've got aircraft. You know, you might be with another 12 guys, might be with another 100 guys. depends what you're doing. Um, so you still, though you get scared, it's not so bad. With private security, you, never, you don't work on your own, but you work in a lot smaller groups. You don't get a lot of help and support. But the army will come and help you if they can, but you're not always first on the list because if they've got a big problem themselves, that gets dealt with first. Um, so quite often you get scared private security because you knew that you was it was down to you and the few people you had with you. Um, and obviously when you're looking after people, you can't look scared. Because if your bodyguard looks scared, it's not really, you know, it doesn't look great. So um, I think you just have to learn how to still operate correctly when when you're, um, you know, when you're scared and you don't think. There's quite a few times I've said to people, don't don't worry, just listen to what I say. Um, everything's going to be fine. Follow what I do, do as I tell you to do, and we're going to be fine. But in my own head, I've been thinking, I don't think we're going to get out of this one. Um, so, you know, it just depends on, on, on the individual and how you... Um, on how you process all of it and how you react so it's more to the point you still need to be able to do the right thing um when you're scared which for some people it's easier than it is for others so do you have to program yourself then to control your fear response um i think so the first time i really felt fear 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 um but i still had to sort of do something anyway because most people when they when they come across fear the simple fact that they won't do it if they want to jump across a river and they're scared, they won't jump across the river. They walk around, take the bridge. You know, if they if they if they don't want to do a bungee jump because they're scared to do a bungee jump, they won't do a bungee jump. But when you're scared, obviously, particularly in the military, it doesn't matter if you're scared or not. You've still got to do whatever it is you're scared of. So you get pushed into ex- experiencing that quite early in the in your military days. And I think I probably um, experienced very first time when I was in Canada, actually. Um, and we was on a live firing exercise at night and it wasn't going particularly well. Um, we had um, a number of armoured vehicles that had rolled over in the night because when you fire at night, there's a no light policy. So although you have night vision goggles and you can see, it's still very difficult to judge judge the ground in front. Um, so we had, we had a few casualties that night. We was doing a river crossing. Um, we had the, uh, someone fired something, can't remember what it was and it didn't hit the right target. That caused the problem. Um, and it was all getting, it wasn't getting out of hand because it's quite well controlled, but it, there was a lot, was at that particular point of the evening, it's like two o'clock in the morning, um, there's quite a lot of stuff going wrong. Um, and I was waiting for them at any time to kind of stop the exercise because it was going that bad and they didn't. Um, and it was our turn. I was driving a, a Land Rover, which is just a soft, soft skin Land Rover. And we had to go across this bridge that the engineers had set out at night across this river. No lights. 
I'd known people, I knew people had already fallen off it and gone into the river and I knew there'd been casualties from it. And it was my going next. And I remember thinking, you know, I just want to get out of this car. I want to get out of this Land Rover now and walk off. Um, but I thought, I can't. I'm, I'm here now. I can't just walk out in the middle of, you know, in the middle of all these tanks and everything else, what was around us. And I think, you know, I, I, you know, I was scared then. I thought, I don't know what's going to happen. And I thought, do you know what? If I'm going to do it. And if I fall into the water and I break my back or I drown myself or whatever, that's, that's what happens. I could, because I'd rather that now than get out of this Land Rover and say to everybody, sorry, but I'm going home. And I think, you know, I did it and it worked out fine. We went across. It is a little bit uh, dodgy, but, you know, we, we did it fine. We got across. And I thought, you know, that proved to me that just get on with it and just do it and just hope for the best. That w- w- If you ever come to a place where you'll be surprised what people can do, everybody can do when they really have to do it. You know, a lot of people say they wouldn't be able to do my job. If you really had to do it, just for a day, not for like a career like I did it, but for a day, you would. You turn up, you put your helmet on, you put your body armor on, you get it done. Because everyone can. When it's life or death kind of situation, you'd be very surprised what, you know, what everybody could do. You might not want to do it, but you will do it. So would you say that being forced to confront your fear head on gave you a degree of control over your fear? Yeah, massively. Because what it taught me very quickly is, it's, first of all, it taught me I get scared. Uh, secondly, it, it taught me that I can still operate when I'm scared, which then, taught, which then also taught me it doesn't matter if you get scared or not, just think it through and get on with it. And I knew I was capable of not just, um, you know, I knew I could be scared and still do a good job, which was important to me. Because if you're, if you're scared and can't do a good job, and you're not, in the military, you might get away with it because you're with so many people. Private security, you're not going to be any good for the business. So, yeah, very early on, I was kind of pleased with myself that I'd come across that because it wasn't so much a life or death, but there was a lot going on for me to be scared at the time. Um, and it, it made me realise that just get on with it. Don't sort of think about it too much. Do what you've got to do. And often I think there's another, you know, there's another 500 people here as well. Everyone's probably just as scared as you are. And that used to happen a lot to me later on in my life in the Middle East where the guys were just as scared as I was, but when you look at them, you think they're not. But we all were, but no one ever used to say anything. That was the only difference. So did you find the Middle East taught you valuable skills that you then um, transferred over to becoming a bodyguard for celebrities? No, totally different. (laughs) (laughs) Say that. Um, (laughs) Not really. Not getting sounded or... There's a few few transferable skills, maybe. Maybe. So like Matt reading, things like that, you know, um, Matt reading in Iraq and Afghanistan is very important. Obviously, you start traveling in the, in the wrong areas, you could get attacked. Um, also, if something does happen, you need to have the ability to call for help and get them to come to the right location. So Matt reading, um, even though there's GPSs these days and, and um, uh, devices, what sort of can press a button and send a signal straight away for help. But you still need to know where you are and to know, to be, know how to read a map in London. It's kind of the same. Obviously, the danger's not there, but you need to know your way around London. It's a it's a rabbit warren, um, but you also need to know your way around London if it's thick, if there's a, a lot of traffic, if the roads are closed, which they often are, if there's maybe a big event on, if there's a protest, which you get a lot of here. So you need to know all your bits and routes and front doors, back doors, and you know. So in terms of um, map reading, I would say it was quite helpful, um, and. Being a bodyguard, the fundamentals, I guess, with your interaction with yourself and the person you're looking after are kind of the same. It just depends on what level you're doing it at. It depends on, you know, whether you've got firearms, whether you haven't got firearms, whether the threat's low, whether it's high. 
whether it's a threat to life, whether it's just a threat because you're a celebrity and maybe um, a stalker or build up of people. But in general, the job starts off. It's got it's got um, a few a handful of the same traits depending on where you're operating. Um, so I suppose it did help. Maybe it helped me more than than what I realised. Um, but I, what, where it did help me was nothing was ever going to happen to me as bad in the UK as what I had just experienced out there. So although I wasn't sort of blasé in the UK, um, my, my attitude when I worked away was the worst that could happen can kill me. I didn't really have that attitude here. Um, the worst that could happen here is I kind of got it wrong and maybe you know it got a little bit messy for five minutes and we carried on for the day. But you just mentioned stalkers. I mean, who had the worst stalker? Our worst. I mean, they, most celebrities, A-list celebrities, they have them now, especially with social media. And a stalker doesn't necessarily mean standing outside your house. It can be also on social media. Um, it can be due to sending gifts and stuff to places. Um, so there's all types of ways of getting to celebrities, more so now than ever before, getting to, to celebrities because they've all got social media. So quite often you can find where they are pretty quickly because they put the stories up on Instagram and, and TikTok. We always tell them don't put them up when you're there, do it after. But, you know, you can still kind of follow a route or pattern as to where people have been if you really want to find someone. So stalkers are quite high. Physical stalkers and sort of just people being a nuisance, if you like. Um, I, I didn't come across so many physical stalkers. More people just there lingering, wanting to chat, wanting to say hello. But they're too much, it's too creepy kind of thing. But also with stalkers, in my experience, mental health has more often than not attached to, to that that kind of behaviour. So um, how you handled that, and and you could never eradicate it altogether because of that reason, if you know what I mean. It wasn't really much. Because, it, again, in, it depends on which country, because in in UK um, to somewhere, say, like London to New York, the rules are different on, the laws are different on what people can do and can't do um, to invade privacy. So... Um, it just depended where you was in the world. And if you was a professional stalker, you'd know the best countries to go to where you could get the sort of the best of what you want because the laws are more free for you to do that. And what countries are they? Um, I know certainly with the, not so much with stalking, but with the PAPs and that, the PAPs have more rights in America than they do get. They're quite, not violent, but they're, they're a lot more pushy um, than what you get here. They're quite respectful in the UK, even though everybody still wants a picture. They're relatively respectful. And the general law here is you can't run inside somewhere and take pictures. So you can't go into airports, although they do. You can't go into airports, can't go into shops. If you're outside public space, they can take pictures. That's fine. But as soon as you go into shops or, you know, events or wherever you're going inside, they're not meant to. Um, I believe in the US, they kind of don't really care too much about any of that. And they just sort of, you know, a little bit more, a bit more forceful. But... <sighs> It's just an occupational hazard of being an A-lister, unfortunately. So Did you get is... any physical altercations with stalkers or paps? Uh, not really. I mean, if you do, a lot of the time I was working with people. So Michael Jackson was the only person that I worked with, um, with uh, five, it was four, it was five of us all together on that, on that job. All the other people I've looked after, I've done on my, done on my own. So... You have to manage things different when you're on your own as to how you manage things, obviously, when you've got five other people. Um, so more often than not, if I could see, a, if I was on my own, I'd see a situation happening or maybe a stalker that we'd recognised or someone that I thought kept popping up from place to place too much and it's a little bit 
strange. I just moved the person that I'm looking after away. Not not in a not not sort of a, in a way of a fuss, but just you know just slowly move them away. Um, and then if it, if it got sort of escalated to that, and I say we have to go, so I'd always try not to um, sort of get too physical with other people. Obviously, it's the odd occasion I've had to put a hand in, push push someone away, maybe, um, or just tell them no. And I've been quite fortunate in my time in the UK. Anyone I've said no to has taken that as a no. And, um, sort of left us alone. You do get people who try and push it a little bit, but it's, it's more because they just want to be seen with the person or they want a picture. So they don't really mean any sort of violence or anything nasty about it, but they just, sometimes it can be a bit overbearing and it's very difficult to probably understand for them what, imagine being a celebrity, what it must feel like having all these people jumping all over you. Um, and, and in terms of paps, the paps were quite respectful, to be honest here. And the reason why they were is because I used to, I think I, I used to communicate with them properly. Um, I, I treated them as people out for a day's work rather than the enemy. Um, and that always helped me because the times that we really didn't want photographs, um, I would just say, look, we don't want photographs tonight. Um, just do us a favour and give us a night off. And to be fair, they would because they knew that tomorrow when they could have photographs, um, we would make sure that everybody got a photograph. Um, and that worked really well for me rather than just every night putting your hands on the lens and, you know, being a bit of a bit of a pain. Um, because once you do that, obviously they, they get a bit antsy and they're just in, in your face all the time. So I used to manage them quite well here. And they're all, you know, they're all out for a day's, a day's wage trying to get pictures. But, um, yeah, I just found it as how you speak to them, really. So what was Michael Jackson like? <laughs> Question always <laughs> So I spent uh, about 10 days with him. Um at World Music Awards 2006, I was working in Afghanistan. I'd just come home, and a guy I worked with uh, lived in Edinburgh, and he said, do you want to come up for a couple of, ga- couple of days, a few days, we'll go out drinking or whatever. Um, at the time, I don't think I'd ever been to Edinburgh, so I said, yeah, okay, I'd lived in Eastbourne still then. I flew up to Edinburgh, Gatwick, I think it was. Um, I was there one night, and then someone called me and said, will you look after a guy who's coming into London on Monday? Um, and that's all they told me. Uh, and I thought, oh, you know, I've only got four weeks off for starters before I go back to Afghanistan, and I'm in Edinburgh. This isn't particularly, you know, suitable. So I said, um, probably not. I said, what's what's the job? They just said, oh, there's, there's a guy, there's a guy coming into London, um, seven to ten days. Uh, we look after him as accommodation. Everything's provided. We look after him. I said, give me a minute. So I put the phone down and I told my mate, he said, oh, why don't you go and do it? He said, because you're going to be working in London at some stage anyway. And I thought, he's right. You know, I, it could be a little, it could be a good little way of just seeing how it all works here and, you know, um, sort of getting feet under the door a little bit in London. So I, I rung the guy back and I said, I can, but the only problem is I'm in Edinburgh. How long have I got? He said, well, it, it comes in Monday morning. I think at the time it was Luton. So I worked it out and I had time to get there. So I said, yes, I'll do it. So um changed my flights for the next morning we went out that night stayed out far too late I turned up for my flight for the time that it had taken off not for the time but I needed to board so I missed my flight in Edinburgh so I was thinking I haven't really got that time here to be missing flights um I managed to get on another one they put me straight onto uh, another one a different air- airline so I had to pay again uh, and I, I landed in Heathrow. I didn't have time to go to Eastbourne. So I had to buy all my suit, shirts, shoes, everything I needed for the job. Um, I went across to Luton, 
Whereas a hotel we was meeting in there, I can't remember what it was now, but it's just outside the airport somewhere. I managed to get iron to iron the, the, the nice creases you get out of a packet shirt, so I didn't look like I'd just pulled it all. Um, <laughs> and then um, I uh, sat down, and someone it was a few other people in the room, and someone handed us like a, a document. It said who was coming in. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Is worth my sponsor, Beer Fifty Two. Do you fancy a free case of beer? My co-host Jen may have quit alcohol, but you don't have to keep going with dry January. You can get a case of exceptional beer from my good friends at Beer 52. Simply go to www.beer52.com forward slash S-H-A-U-N, Sean. And all you got to pay is a pittance, the postage, five ninety five to claim a free case now. I've been a member of Beer 52 for a while, and I absolutely love it. Each month, they send their members a case of unique and varied beers from a different part of the world. They've also got the Ferment magazine. If you want to study up on breweries, regions, the wonderful world of beer while enjoying a phenomenal selection of fresh and tasty craft ales. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Link is in the description box below this video on YouTube. Um, and Michael Jackson was on the front. But at that stage, I still didn't think Michael Jackson. <laughs> I just thought Michael Jackson was on the front. Um, and I read it. And then the, the guy next to me said, oh, Michael Jackson. And I thought, it's not Imo, is it? He said, yes, yeah, Michael Jackson. So I was like, oh, okay, then. Well, I'm looking after Michael Jackson then. Fine. So um, an hour later, he could come in. We picked him up off the tarmac. Again, the same as kind of uh, the feeling I had in the right when I looked at him for the first time. I thought, oh, okay, that's what Michael Jackson looks like. <laughs> um, and then that was kind of it, really. It was just another... You know, I never really... Um, I never really fully appreciated that job at the time because I was on leave. I didn't particularly want to work. Um, I was there just to sort of see what it was all about. It happened to be Michael Jackson, which was fine. I was going back to Afghanistan after that. It's just another job for me, really, which was in London. It wasn't until sort of quite a number of years later that I realised, really, that it's quite a good, you know, for a bodyguard's perspective, not many people have had the chance to look after. There's always been a number of people around him in the UK over the years, but he never used to come here that much. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of didn't really see the, uh, the excitement of it so much when I first... Um, when I first saw him, but we did, we went to, where did we go? We went to Guinness Book of Records, we got an award there, we went to the World Music Awards, we went out for a couple of dinners, we went to Mary Poppins with the children and himself, um, which was, that was quite interesting. We took him into the theatre um, when it was dark, sort of the, the show had just started um, and we sat down and no one noticed him. And I remember thinking, because I wasn't running the team, I was just a member of the team at the time, and I remember thinking, well, this is great because we've got him, but unless we get him out in the dark as well, <laughs> how are we going to get this guy out of here? Because So, of course, it comes to the interval, and it did. They put all the lights on, and all of a sudden, the show almost stopped because the actors on the stage were just in awe as everyone else in the thing. You know, it really kind of ruined, it ruined the proceedings, really. <laughs> Um, the fact that Michael Jackson was sat in the audience, so then we had to get him out quick because it was just too many people in there. Um, and that was it. I don't think what second half that was. No, that was it. We used to have to do that a lot, you know, with stuff dip in and dip out. Um, because you these we had lots of cars, taxis, um, but but fans were paying for to, to follow him around all day, all night at Beck and Call. They had their own cars out, like taxis outside black cabs. Um, and they were just constantly, a lot of fans paid to stay in the same hotel as him so they could be in the lobby when he come down. Um, 
and obviously on the security point of view, all that's a bit of a pain in the backside for us. But we can't, you can't stop people booking rooms, you can't stop people having taxis. So it's a very hectic job that was. I learned a lot, and from my first job in London, it was probably quite a big job. But um, he was quiet. He he was very subdued. He, he got an award at uh, the World Music Award. I think he shocks everybody. He was meant to sing, um, and he didn't sing. He had a Michael Jackson tribute, if you want to call it that, double. He did the song, um, and I think even even we were shocked. But yeah, um, you know, it was a it was a ten day visit. I think I never I never worked with him again after that. It was just that that's the only visit I did with him. Oh God! And who was your next major star? Um, so obviously I went back to Afghan and then come back after I started working in the UK. My first one in the UK was, I've done quite a few, but I don't sort of mention because I wasn't that long with them. Um, but I would probably say Kendall Jenner, I think. Kardashians. Yeah, I think it was Kendall for London Fashion Week. I did two couple of London Fashion Weeks with her. Um, and then after that, I moved on to Bella. Bella I Hadid. bet with Kendall it was busy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean all all those girls, because again they don't come here often. So there's a lot of they have a they have, as you know, as we know, they have a huge following. Um the paps love them because they love getting photos of them because they don't come here so much. Um Yeah, that was I mean it wasn't again, I got spoiled a bit because I did Michael Jackson for my first job. Nothing's really ever gonna be like that again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I did it I don't know anything about Trump really, but um, yeah, it, it was, yeah. But again, Kendall was great to work with. Um, she gets it in every country, you know, so she knows what to expect. And, mm. uh, we, you know, we used to have a good time. Bella, Bella was the same. I did a little bit of Gigi Hadid. Uh, not much, but a little bit. Um, I've done stuff with Dizzy Rascal, um, Halsey, who's out in the States. Um, Rita Ora, as we've on and off. But all these people, it's trying to, it's not a full time. I don't know if people always understand that. It's not a full time job. You're not with them all the time. So you'll have them at certain parts of the world or certain places, depending on what they're doing. So mm. um, that's why I was lucky enough to sort of get around looking after so many different people. Obviously, if I was with one the whole time, I'd have had one person and that would have been it. I'm sure you just baffled Sean's mind there with those names. <laughs> yeah, no, I tell you what, I had to Google all them. But when someone said we look after Ventum, I said, "Yeah, sure," and did a Google. <laughs> Michael Jackson was the only one I didn't Google. Con- conversing with Michael Jackson, then what? What? What was he like? If you actually talking to him, uh, he's quiet. He was a quiet guy. He's a nice guy, friendly, softly spoken. Didn't have loads of interaction with him because he had lots of people around him. He had PAs and um, you know just stuff. People doing all this stuff, but. He's very appreciative. He's very appreciative of his fans. It's, it, it used to be lots of people would have stuff for him and he, he would always ask us to go out and we couldn't take it. It was just too much stuff, but we'd sort of choose a few bits off people um, and give them to him. And they obviously didn't get to see him or anything, but I always saw him looking at the stuff and pro- having a proper look at it, not just going, oh, great, thanks, that's that done. You know, he had a, he had a good look at it and... Uh, and he was very good. Like, and I always remember thinking that, yeah, that's a nice thing to do because those people don't know if he's looked at it or not, obviously, but he did. He always looked at his stuff. So, um, but I mean, his following was, you know, that that guy, that poor guy, really, the life he must have, it's so infringed for him to just, he put his hand out the window and the whole half of London screamed, you know, so, and it's his hand. He didn't, half of them weren't even sure if it was his hand or not. I thought, I'll go and try it. <laughs> didn't but, have a glove. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but 
it is, yeah, I mean, that's just, he's, he's huge, wasn't he? I don't think there'll ever be anyone like that again, to be honest with you. No. So I've got to ask, what, sorry, carry on. He was a nice bloke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask, Naomi Campbell, was she a diva? Oh, yeah, I forgot about her. See what I mean? I've got on a few others as well. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never, I've never looked after anyone that's not um, what that I haven't. Like, I've never had to look after anyone. It's kind of, um, you know, I say if I want to do the job or not. So, if I ever come across anyone that I um, maybe I don't think is a good fit, um, then I wouldn't do it. Or if I've been on a job before, I never, I never in my in my whole time. I was seventeen years start to finish, and I'd never walked off a job or anything like that. But I might not be available again if the job comes around again. Um, if I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't and so did keen. What uh, with her? Yeah. No. <laughs> he wouldn't say it anyway. <laughs> 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 Uh, so no. yeah, that's how I used to play it. I would never sort of um, make a fuss out of it. You do what you've been booked for, and then the next time it comes around, so I'm really sorry, I'm already booked for someone else. <laughs> You're sorry, busy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when did you get into acting then? Um, so I first started film work in 2010, actually, which is quite a while ago now. I uh, Going back, this is intertwined slightly with Iraq, so going back to private security in Iraq, there was a guy there who was an older guy than me. He'd been in the army for a long time and he'd been working private security a lot longer than I had. And he was out there looking after the army, which is obviously the place where we used to keep all the weapons. Um, and that was his job out there. And I was talking to him one day and he said, I said, what was you doing before you was, you come out here? And he said, Oh, I was, um, he said, I doing some film work and I'd never heard of film work really then. So I said, what, what, what was that? He said, well, he, he was a military advisor on the movie Troy all that time ago. So I thought, oh, so that sounds like fun. How did you get involved in that? And he sort of told me, and he'd done a few other bits and pieces as well. I said, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. But I knew I couldn't do it at the time because obviously I was working away. So he gave me a, um, a card, and he wrote down a number on it uh, um, and a name. And uh, I put it in my bag. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he he told me all about it, and I thought, yeah, you know, it's a great, it's a great thing. It sounds like a great thing to do. Stuck it in my bag, and then I didn't. Um, I didn't do anything with it. I went to the rest of Iraq. I went to Afghanistan, and then I come home. When I moved to London, I used that bag to move some stuff. And when I was emptying it in London, the card fell out, and I thought, "Oh, I forgot about that card." And I thought, "Well, actually, it's in Shepherd's Bush at the time I was in Battersea." But that's only around the corner as well. So um, I contacted the people, and uh, they said to me, "If you if you fill all these." documents in and everything else and send them and we get back to you so it was about 12 pages of stuff I had to fill in and someone else with me um, another guy with me he wanted to do it as well but then when he found out he had to fill all his paperwork out he decided <laughs> oh you know I can't be bothered with I'm not doing it so I thought well if I don't do it I'm not going to get a chance of you know having a go at this so I did it all sent it in they they um, replied saying that, that their books weren't open until the following year so I thought, okay, that's fine, no problem. I thought, well, I've done it now, it's here, and I can forget about this now till next August or whatever. Um, back in the days where I could go in the gym and leave my mobile phone in the uh, locker, it doesn't happen anymore, but back then I could leave it there. Uh, and I come back to the locker after a gym session one evening, and there was a missed call on there, and I listened to the voicemail, and it was a guy from this place. And... Uh, 
said, oh, will you fly out to Morocco on Monday morning to work on a, um, a Matt Damon film? Now, because I told the guys on this job I'd been on, and one of them who obviously was going to do the forms and didn't want to do them, I thought it was the lads winding me up because they told me already, his company had already told me, but nothing until next year. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go back in a minute saying to the rest of the house that I've got this this movie I'm doing, and then they're going to say to me, no, you haven't. So I, um, I Googled the number, and then uh, I, end, I ended up um, finding out that it was the right number for the place that, that um, I, I, you know, I'd spoken to before. I called them back, and basically... They offered me a job. I think I did about six or eight weeks in Afghanistan. Um, sorry, Afghanistan, in uh, Morocco. Um, and then, yeah, I left the job that I was on. I had one day left where it overlapped, so I managed to get a day off. I flew out to Morocco. And I did six, nearly six or eight weeks, I think I did, for, for the green zone. Um, and it's mainly Americans, actually. It's only me and one other English guy on that. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, because it was all done up as US Special Forces soldiers, um, I remember thinking at the time that this is great. This is because it's, it's like being in Iraq with the heat and the, the blank fire and nothing else. But no one was shooting back. Um, and I remember thinking, then this is something for later on because I was still working as a bodyguard. And this is something for later on that you know maybe I, I would like to pursue. So that was my very first thing in the film industry, if you like. And then after that, I got offered quite a lot of work actually from that film, but I couldn't take it because I was still a working bodyguard. Um, and I was doing other things. I was out doing ship security at the time with anti-piracy. So I wasn't at home that much again around that period. But I did then st- uh, took a job on Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows of Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Um, and I had quite a nice part in that, actually, but I kind of it all went a bit wrong for me. I, I, I did some filming at um, Chatham Dockyard, old Chatham Dockyard. Um, and then we had about six weeks where we wasn't needed um, and a, a, a ship job come up that I could fly out to Oman and take an oil tanker down to Port Suez, um, past the coast of Somalia, and protect it from the uh, you know, anti-piracy from pirates. So I thought it was only a ten-day job. So I thought I'll jump on that. I'll take that. I'll take that job, and then I'll come back and I'll do the, the other part of the film I've got to do. Um, but we got stuck out there. We got stuck on this job for um, nearly six, six to eight weeks. Uh, no one could get hold of me. I didn't have a mobile because there's no mobile phone signal out there, so no one really knew what I was doing. I couldn't get I couldn't get a message to the, the filming company to say I weren't coming back, and I thought they're going to sack me. You know, this is not because you can't just continuity and everything in a movie. You can't just start in the movie and then go missing. So um, <laughs> I uh, I managed to finally get back off that job, and I, I I I rung them up and I went down to see them, and, and I just thought I hope you believe because my story is a little bit out there, saying I've just been stuck on a ship from pirates for the last. So um, I thought I need to go down face to face and explain what's happened here. Uh, and to be fair, they were all right about it. They 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 knew, you know, they thought it might be something like that, and they said, "I said I'm really sorry, and I'm not lying." Here's my, I, I had a seaman's book and discharge. said, I've been on the vessel. I said, here's, here's the proof that I've been away. Here's the emails for the job. They said, no, 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 it's fine. They said, um, the next part is one more part, which is the end of the movie, which is filming in Oxford. Um, can you go on that? So I thought, oh, great. You know, they've let me. So I did. So I'm kind of a little bit at the beginning and I'm a little bit at the end. And that's it. I'll be missed because I'm stuck at sea. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You'll know that while watching it now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, after that, I think one of the, another thing was um, I doubled for Dave Batista in the movie Final Score. Um, and that was, a, that was a funny whereabouts as well. At the time, I was down in Brighton. Um, I lived in London by then, but I was down in Brighton seeing some friends. Um, I used to know from when I lived in Eastbourne 
And uh, I had a call one night from the same company I went out to Morocco with, actually. And they said, can you do a job for us in West Ham tomorrow morning? I said, what time? They said, it's a five o'clock pickup. And I said, well, I'm in, I'm in Brighton at the moment. And I was drinking. Um, so I thought, I can't, it's just impossible. I'm not going to be able to get back. Um, and they said, are you sure? I said, well, I'm drinking. And I thought, if I stop drinking now and I drive home at like 4.30 in the morning, because it's only sort of like three in the afternoon, I thought I'd be all right. I'd only had a couple, but I planned to stay out all evening. Um, and I thought, okay, no, I'm not, I'm not going to ruin my night. I'll see my friends. I'm going to stay. Anyway, they rung me back twice. And in the end, um, I said, do you know what? I'll, I'll come and do it for you. I'll do it. And it was, again, another job again. It wasn't until I got to set. Uh, they sent the car to my house, took me to set, and then um, told me that, you know, I, was, I had to double for Dave, which is, you know, I mean, the guy's huge. I'm big, but he's huge. Um so yeah, I did that. And that, again, that's helped me out with my, you know, with my acting career and stuff today because he's obviously he's quite a huge character in the Marvel f- films and stuff. So um, that was just by default, I guess. I I happened to get that job really. Uh, and what is the most difficult role you played? Uh, there is one. Is <laughs> one. Um, I got I got duped a little bit. Um, I got asked to go and do it. Did I want to do a T-Mobile advert? Um, of course. Yeah. And, and uh, this is at a time I was still working bodyguard, but I was sort of doing, doing bits and pieces now and then because I knew I was going to get into acting full time, if you like, at some stage. Um, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll go and do it. It's Liverpool Street Station. It's quite a few years ago now. Um, I remember I turned up and the holding area for all the cast and crew was a pub, which was local to the station the station wasn't closed or anything it's had all the people in there um and they split us up into groups in the pub um but i was kind of on my own i, I wasn't put into a group and i was thinking why am i not in a, why am i not in a group and there was another girl who, who was stood there was not in the group so i thought maybe i'm with her and so anyway, we got put together and the guy said right we're going to lead you across to liverpool street station now um just follow us. So I said, fine. So we're walking across and I'm thinking, I don't even know what I'm, I'm here to do yet. And the girl I'm being partnered with, she goes, you don't look like a dancer, though. Are you a dancer? And I said, a dancer? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and she said, um, what, did a fox chart? <laughs> I, like, um, <laughs> I thought she'd wind me up. So I said, all right. She said, yeah. I said, well, what, what is it? She goes, so basically... We start doing the fox shot. I was like, "What in the station? She's in the station. With everyone there." Um, I said, "I've never even done the fox shot. Not even messing around." <laughs> yeah. She said, "Look, she goes. Um, she's a professional dancer. This girl." So she said, "Look, you know, don't worry. Stay loose. Very loose. Stay, loose. Stay with me." Um, and uh, said, well, this was another time I was scared. By the way, and then. Um, and then uh, you know, just go with it. And I remember thinking, I was walking across there and it's a bit like the military with the crossing of that river and, you know, other times when I've been in the Middle East, I remember thinking, I've got two choices. I either get on and do this and it'll be all right or i just got to go home and be booed off set now and not even not even having given it a go. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought, if I go on there and I can't do it, what's the worst they're going to do? They're going to say, get out. Who's this idiot? Get out. You know, and they ring up the company and say, don't send him again. Um, and I thought, it's not going to kill me, is it? Because obviously I've done stuff before then, which was a lot more, you know. So I just thought, just go and do it. And you might surprise yourself. And I mean, I surprised myself that I did it. But um, no one really noticed. No one said anything. Um and it was in the advert, but very, it was like a, luckily it was um, like a, sort of a quick, a quick bit. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was for me. That was the worst. I've been uh, acting school is a few bits I I had to do, which because obviously I'm quite typecast. You know, bodyguard, soldier, police officer, prison officer, prison inmate, gangster. You know, all these different kind of type. It's all. You know, fighting and all that stuff it's all it's all the same uh, type of stuff but at acting school um i think i had to do a scene from when harry met sally which um you know it was all right but it wasn't sort of it wouldn't be my scene of choice to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think i think the dancing was my worst for certain to be on camera the rest of the stuff i've sort of done it's all been gun shooting running around um, you know, if it's been dialogue, it's been shouting or, or sort of sort of stuff that is it within keeping of what I would do as an actor, really. So you Did you ever bump into our friend? Stuff. Did you ever bump into our friend Big Joe Egan? Because that wasn't he in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. I know you mean. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's great. No, so you said you played prisoners, didn't you? Do you know much about uh, Sean's story? Yes, I do, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> if he were to do a film about his life, would you play his much better younger self? <laughs> <laughs> would I? Would I? Would I? Would I? Would I? Yeah, I mean, first of all, where I'm typecast, I'm quite happy with that typecast because I, it's relatively easy for me to do. I'm 44 years old. I didn't do three years at performing arts school. I haven't done theatre. So... For me to be in any movies at any level, you know, whether it's a small piece or a big piece, I'm quite grateful. Um, I don't claim to be the world's best actor. I'm sure there's also worse out there than me. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I, I would... I, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's exactly the sort of thing that I would love to play, really, that sort of thing, because that, that's kind of what I do. But at the same time, I have always said that one day maybe I'd like to do something which is something where you wouldn't expect to see me. Um, and I wouldn't want to particularly pursue a career in doing that but maybe just a one-off one day where it's a film where you just think blimey i didn't think you'd see him in that um, <laughs> yeah just 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 to show a little bit of range i guess but yeah i mean i'm, I'm happy with what i get and if i was if i was to play um sort of your life out that is exactly the sort of stuff i always interrupt him so before we go into what you're up to now i wanted to ask how it felt being voted um, most, I think it was most good-looking celebrity bodyguard in Vogue magazine. Yeah, I got. Wait, I got. <laughs> well, this is kind of where it all went. So I think I remember what year it was. It was a London Fashion Week where I was with Bella Hadid. I looked after Bella on and off for about two years in London. So I did quite a few fashion weeks and other bits and pieces with her. Um, and I think it was Vogue comment, uh, put a thing up saying. Bella Hadid's bodyguard is the real, real, um, what is it? Something like the real stylist of London Fashion Week or something like that, he said. And he got a lot of traction and everything else. And then I started, because of that, every time I was with her, um, I got reported on. Um, Vogue and a number of other publications were doing articles on me. And even to a day um, where I, I had a black t shirt on and one of them said, oh, he's only got a black T-shirt on today. But I think, hold on a minute. <laughs> I'm the bodyguard. I'm not here to, I'm not a fashion accessory. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's like it started all building up like that. Um, and then so it went on. And I didn't do any interviews or anything like I'm doing with you today. I didn't do anything like that at all. I didn't comment on anything. Um, because I was still a working bodyguard, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be totally in the limelight, although I started to become in the limelight because of the people I was looking after. That wasn't really my doing, if you like. That was just because of that's what happened because of the people I was with. 
Um, but then when I thought, you know what, I, I was kind of, I'd done everything I wanted to do in the security game. Um, like literally everything. I mean, there's other stuff I haven't done, don't get me wrong, but everything I wanted to do, I've done. Um, and I thought I'd like to move on. And obviously that's when the sort of the acting side of things um, sort of crept back in again and, and going to school and everything else. And then I, 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 um, I sort of carried on with publications, but I made a conscious effort to leave, um, leave the industry. Well, I, I still own a private security company today, um, but in terms of a working bodyguard, I don't have any, you know, I've not looked after anyone for nearly four years now, just over four years, I think. So I'm still kind of involved in the private security world, if you like, but um, I, I haven't done a day's work for a long, long time. Um, and because the day I committed to doing magazines and podcasts and TV and getting into acting was kind of the day I said that it, you can't do both. It's got to be one or the other. Um, when you're celebrities and stuff, it's fine. But also we used to look after politicians, high net worth people, you know, people maybe through um, the courts, the CPS who had problems. And you know, some of these people, they're not famous. People don't know them. And if I start doing all this with you and I walk down the street and someone knows me for being a bodyguard and who am I with? So it, it wasn't going to, it wasn't appropriate to sort of build my profile and still do the job. So, and that's why I left. Um, I left the industry. I just took a clean break of it. I still got the company. It still makes me, you know, it's just a very successful business. It makes me some good money. So, I've I've finished, but not finished with the private security uh, industry. Really, you know, I made I made some um, good money over the years doing it. Uh, I haven't got a bad bad thing to say about the industry, really. But I I just for me, I just done everything I wanted to do, and I had enough, and felt it was time to move on. And I think the ma- the magazines and stuff probably gave me that nudge to do what I'm doing today, and certainly do more of the acting and and branch off doing that. I think so. That's kind of yeah that. At the time, I was getting a lot of coverage, and it's t- kind of blossomed into what I'm doing now, really. You seem to be in a really good place, Simon. Would you say that your near-death experiences have taught you to become this person that you are that seems very zen-like and, and content? I've, my personal opinion, I, I, I would say they've had something to do with it. I don't know what, but my personal opinion is um, you, you're either one of these people or it's not, or you're not. And there's there's lots of guys like me who've worked out there who are just as happy, chirpy, doing well today. Um, as is, as, as Unfortunately, it's just as many guys that aren't maybe suffering and they are suffering from PTSD and they're having problems. Maybe some even lost their, taking their own lives. Um, and I, I, I don't know, obviously I'm not a doctor, I don't know if it's what the science is behind that, but I don't, I personally don't feel like I've done, I've made a conscious effort to be all right with life. You know, after anything I've seen, I've never struggled with anything I've seen. Um, one, one of my biggest things I do know is to not say I'm not affected at all. It, it wouldn't be wouldn't be true to say that, but certainly loud bangs. I never realised how loud that fireworks night and cars backfiring. I jump out my skin, and it takes probably thirty seconds sometimes for that to all sort of float away. Whereas for you, it might take no more than two or three seconds. You're fine again. So there, there is little bits like that, which obviously deep down. But then working in those places for all that amount of time you'd probably be silly to think it hasn't affected you whatsoever. Um, but I'm just, the way I am today was really the same way I was in the military, the same I was in the Middle East, same I was as a bodyguard, same I am within business, the same I am now within my acting career. I'm just keep punching away, stabbing away, get on with it, have fun, just keep doing it. You know, don't just be relentless in everything you do, really. I'm the same in the gym, um, everything I do. And I enjoy being like that. You know, obviously, everyone has their down days. Everybody gets tired and all that sort of thing. But I enjoy achieving. That's my biggest thing. People always say to me about money. Um, money is not that important to me. I like nice cars. I like nice watches. And I do like all that. Don't get me wrong. 
but I actually like being successful better. And obviously, being successful, quite often money comes along. Not always, because you can be successful in, in other ways. If you make a great cake, you've been successful making a cake. Don't make any money out of it. But um, so there are other ways. But often, certainly successful in business, obviously, often means you know financial reward. But yeah, I've always been like that. I wanted to be the best soldier, and I wanted to be the best bear when I worked at the theme park. I wanted to be you know the best army cadet when I was in the army cadet. So I just, just that's what I've always been like. And and when I say the best. The best I can be, you know, like to say I want to be the best actor and beat Daniel Craig and Tom Hardy, you know, I'm realistic. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about being 007. I'd like to be in a Bond movie, but I'm not worried about being 007. You know, I'd like to be the best I can be, what I've got time to do, what I think I can do. Uh, and I've always been like that. If, as long as I can do my best, if it goes wrong, I, I don't care. I've done my best. It, you know, I'll have another go. I'll do it again. I'll do it again. I'll change it. I'll do it a different way. I'll ask someone how they did it. You know, and then in the end, I always, I'm a slow start with a lot of stuff because it doesn't always work out for me. But I always end up doing what I want to do. It, or I always get there in the end with it. I absolutely love that attitude. So, yeah, what is next for you? Next. I've got a whole load of stuff going on at the moment, to be honest. Um, so the, the security company is doing quite well at the moment. We just, not long actually, we just had a, quite a big ad, uh, advertisement, well, not advertisement, sorry, article in the Sunday Times, and that's, that's created just quite a bit of work. Um, so that happened last Sunday. But we're, we're, the security company is always building itself leaps and bounds. And obviously, I've got a team in the office and stuff, and plenty of guys working, guys and girls. Um, so... That's fine. That's always been suffered over COVID. Obviously, like everybody did quite dramatically, actually. But we, it didn't put it's, it didn't put us out of business. And actually, we're stronger now than we probably was before we started um, COVID. So, so that's all great. But on top of that, I still have um, a number of things and bits and pieces like I'm doing, what I'm doing with you today. I've got a movie I've just been cast for called Crossfire with Shogun Films, which is a mm-hmm. Christmas movie, um, and that's due to come out. I think it's about Christmas Eve in a shopping mall. A Christmas movie. Called- Crossfire. Yeah, Sorry, I know. A, so, um, it's a bit of a different. I mean, you could argue. Not, what was it? Um, the one they say is a, a Christmas movie, and it's really Die Hard, right? It's not a Christmas movie. Is it going to be one of them? It's like, exactly that. So the, it is. Wow. It is a Die Hard. <laughs> it is Die Hard. It's it's neo Nazis. Six neo Nazis take over a shopping mall. Two. Right. It's an American movie. Two American cops are stuck inside, and it's about the fight for the American police officers outside to get into the thing and the one for two which are inside to get out and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a Christmas, it's a Christmas shooting up. <laughs> I'll be the decider on that one, I'll tell you. I'm <laughs> talking about, I've got lots of other, um, uh, it's a couple of other movies I can't speak about, unfortunately, but sort of yeah. one down for at the moment, but at two early stages. I've got Cannes Film, Cannes Film Festival in May um, that I'll be going to. I've also got, uh, I think it's my Bayer Film Festival in October, um, I, here's another business I'm launching at the moment which starts in the next couple of months but I can't say about that at the moment but it's nothing to do with anything what I'm doing at the moment so it's not film, it's not security I will say it's to do with fashion um, so yeah, so I've got a lot going on at the moment uh, it's getting busy times but I, I mean it's all exciting it's definitely busy so that will be revealed all on your Instagram page would you say? Or the Yeah, Instagram, if anyone's interested in anything I do there's always something on Instagram I've got a few different accounts. Uh, my main one, Simon.Newton, but if you, if you go on there, you'll be able to work all my other accounts off it because I've got one for, the, for the, the fashion field. I've got one for my film stuff as well. The company, security company's got one as well. Uh, but my, the main one, Simon.Newton, if you go on there, you'll always see when I'm, what I'm up to next and 
sort of if anyone's interested in following. Well, I like I like to put stuff on there because when I do these things, I don't like to I, I like to be able to prove that I'm doing them. So if I say I've got this coming up and that coming up, you know, anyone can come on the, on a podcast and say we're doing this and we're doing that and we're doing this, and then a year goes by and you haven't done any of it. Um, but you can always see, you can always make sure people can see what I've said I'm doing and always make sure that, that that's plenty of stuff there to see that that's happening. Of course. And yes, thank you for coming on. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. Such a hugely inspirational story, Simon. I'm sure the viewers have enjoyed this as much as us. So if you're watching this, please let us know in the comments what you think. And Simon and Jen's Instagram links will be in the description box below this video. So, yeah, thanks, man. That was phenomenal. Cheers. Cheers. And, yeah, please put in the comments if you think uh, Simon should play Sean in his movie. (laughs) 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 Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug-smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists, and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking, and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In Self Made Use Paid, learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi Campbell? (laughs) Latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.